This is the hour of doom and gloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Guinea Pigs Galore, a show all about our little squeaky friends. What? Guinea Pigs Galore? Guinea Pigs Galore. It's a show all about our little squeaky friends and how to make big bucks skidding them and selling their pelts. What? <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> this is Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a bastion of benevolence in a belligerent world. Is that better? Yeah, that's more like it. All right. <laughs> it's the number one show, by the way, about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like The Little Mermaid. If by little you mean old, and by mermaid you mean geezer. <laughs> Have you lost your marbles? I have lost my marbles. <laughs> I think so. And who am I? Well, I'm the guy that lost his marbles. Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host. Nurse Amy. My actual name is Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She is so beautiful. I have to tell you, I'm just looking at her right now. <laughs> She's so hot. She lights our fireplace just by winking at it. <laughs> if we had a fireplace in South Florida, <laughs> which we don't. <laughs> Gallenberg, we do. That's true. That's true. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get, you know what? The conventional medical wisdom. But you're also going to get the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at absolutely no charge, incoherent tirades by a man who drools on his shoes. Hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble. You know what? You're going to hear it right here. But first, got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. If John Wick's your little brother and a little apocalyptic disaster doesn't bother you, well... But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan? The hospital's out of commission, someone you care about is sick or injured. Well, don't look at me, I'm just a piano player. It's you, old buddy, old pal, old buddy. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff, learn some stuff, and why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where you can find some. Uh, that would be store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. I want to mention, by the way, that the Book Excellence Award-winning 4th edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for What Help is Not on the Way, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over 2,500 reviews. Wow. And is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. And yeah. you, know, you know what some of the complaints are? What? They didn't read the description that it's a black and white book. They, got, they wrote a complaint that it was a black and white book, but the first three words of the description... Are black and white. Well, that would be four words. Black and white book. <laughs> that that's four words. <laughs> oh, read the directions, boys and girls. Oh, I know. I feel bad. So anyhow, you'll find the <laughs> Wait, black and white version. What? I was gonna say. Well, their smart move would have been to return that to Amazon and then get the color versions, which we have on our store. There you go. Store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. So remember, black and white version on Amazon, color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Which very is popular. super special. Yes, and very popular. <laughs> hey, summer's beginning and you can bet there's going to be a heat wave or two in your future. 
That means you're at risk for heat-related illness, things like dehydration and hyperthermia, that is uh, heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Now, if you're the family medic, you better know how to recognize these things and how to act quickly to nip them in the bud, or better yet, prevent them. Now, the most important substance a person needs to survive after air is water. Up to 60% of the human body is comprised of it. Matter of fact, indeed, you'd be lucky to survive more than three days without some good old H2O. In the coming dog days of summer, maintaining your water status, that's called hydration, is going to be important if you're going to stay healthy. Now, water is required for a lot of your bodily functions. It maintains your circulation, it aids your digestion, supplies nutrients, removes wastes, cushions joints even, and even regulates your body temperature much more really than that. Now, if you don't get enough fluids in your system, you become dehydrated. So how much fluid is enough? While the requirements for water depend on the climate you're in, the amount of exertion performed, and the general state of health that you're in. Medical problems like running a fever, diarrhea, or vomiting increase the amount of fluids needed to replace lost water content. If you don't get enough in your system, you become dehydrated. The general rule is that women should drink about 2.7 liters of water a day. Men should drink 3.7 liters. Now, another measure suggests dividing your weight in pounds by half and drink that number of fluid ounces a day. It may seem like a lot, but that's what you need to replace your daily water loss. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they recommend you drink 8 ounces of water either at bedtime or when you wake up, drink at least a glass full with every meal, and if you know there's work to be done outside in the heat, you should drink 16 ounces well before you start, not just before going out. Now you should know that the water content of solid foods is included in measuring your daily intake, and most people ingest about 20%, maybe a quarter of their daily fluids in the form of solid foods. Now, some of your best options for here include, surprise, watermelon, strawberries, grapefruit, spinach, cucumbers, celery, tomatoes, bell peppers, broccoli, cauliflower, things like that. These all contain about 90% of water or more, comprised of 90% water or more. Now, I get asked a lot about dehydrated fruit and vegetable supplements like this balance of nature you see on Fox and other channels. Now, whether they provide nutrients or not, you need to know that they decrease your daily fluid intake from whole fruits and vegetables, right? Because they're supposed to replace those. But you take a capsule, well, not many fluids in a capsule, right? So it could possibly contribute to dehydration if you replace all your whole fruits and vegetables with them. So that's something to think about. So I mentioned a failure to keep up with your fluid status leads to dehydration. Now, how do you know how dehydrated you are? Now, a good measure is the color of your urine. Pale urine, lemonade or straw-colored, indicates a pretty decent hydration level. Good, good work. A darker yellow color means you're behind. An amber-colored urine suggests that you're very behind. you got to get some fluids in you. Now, I will say that some drugs and some medical issues may affect urine color. Now, regardless of hydration status, some meds will turn your urine weird colors, maybe orange or red. Peridium is one of them. That's used for pain from uh, urinary tract infections. Besides color, frequency of urination, the amount of total output should also be measured. Now, if you're well hydrated, you should feel an urge to use the restroom maybe about every two to three hours. Now, a lot of young people don't go that often, but if you do feel an urge to urinate, you should probably not delay. You should always go when you feel like going. Now, other signs and symptoms of dehydration include feeling lightheaded, uh, being thirsty, having a dry mouth, being fatigued. 
Now there's something called turgor, that's skin elasticity, and that decreases in dehydration status. So your turgor is determined by pulling up the skin on the inside of your forearm. In a well-hydrated person, it'll snap right back when released. Try that at home. Now, in severe dehydration, though, it stays tented up or actually returns to normal, but very slowly. So this is a way that you can also tell that somebody's dehydrated. So given how much water we're supposed to drink, I guess many of us walk around all the time at some level of dehydration. Now, in the coming hot weather, how are you going to stay hydrated if you're working or exercising in the sun? The American Council on Exercise suggests drinking 20 ounces two to three hours before any serious exertion, then another eight hours about 20 minutes or so before starting. During your workout, drink eight ounces or so every 10 to 20 minutes. And finally, add another eight ounces no more than 30 minutes after you're done. So that's from people that are exercise experts, and that's what they say you should do. Now, which fluids are best? Some people think any kind of fluid's fine when it comes to rehydration. After all, I, there's a lot of flu water and beer, right? Now, it turns out that some liquids actually can dehydrate you. Examples include regular soda, beer, wine, hard liquor. How about coffee? Well, caffeine in excessive amounts does dehydrate you, say, let's say 300 milligrams. Uh, there's about 80 milligrams per cup of coffee. So we're talking about three to four cups. It's not a small amount of coffee. Now, the thing with coffee is that you're ingesting caffeine, but you're ingesting your caffeine in water. So it's a little more of a wash in moderation than you'd think. You also want to stay away from drinks loaded with sugar, like lemonade, sweet tea, energy drinks, and certain smoothies. They may also remove water from the body. Now, you can counteract some of these effects by drinking a rehydrating glass of water between each dehydrating beverage. You drink some hard liquor, then you should drink some water and rinse and repeat. Now, if water's too boring, you can jazz it up by adding limes, lemons, oranges, uh, berries, cucumbers, things like that to improve the taste. Coconut water is another option. Actually, it's rich in sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. We got a lot of coconuts down here. I don't know about where you are. Now, how about fruit juice? A lot of juices add sugar to increase the sweetness. That's a problem. You want to avoid these. Make sure you look at the label for indications of added sugars. Try to avoid juices that add sugars. Now, construction workers and athletes that spend the day out in the sun, they're going to need more help with hydration than just water. Commercial items that help include products like Pedialyte, Gatorade, and other electrolyte-rich drinks. Now, if you drink these, Avoid ingesting juices or salty foods also, which might unbalance your blood chemistry. You don't want to mix and match these. You really, If you're going to be using Gatorade, you don't want to be drinking a lot of, or eating a lot of salty food or drinking a lot of juices that have a lot of sugar. Let's talk a little bit more about heat. Now, even in places where the air temperature isn't as high, there's something called the heat index. And, the, and in a lot of places, the heat index in summer, we'll surpass the 90, it'll be the 100, some in some places, the 110s. The heat index is a measure of the effects of air temperature combined with humidity. So above about 60% relative humidity, loss of heat by perspiration is impaired, and exposure to full sun increases the reported sensation of how hot it is by as much as 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So all this increases the chance of heat-related illness, such as heat stroke and heat exhaustion. So don't think that in the next couple of months, 
the power grid is not going to be challenged by tens of millions and hundreds of millions maybe of air conditioning units that are set on high. Major health issues are going to arise if the electricity goes out and people wind up being victims of these rolling brownouts that need to be implemented by authorities. And people are going to have to fight the heat with things like hand fans like they did in the, quote, good old days, unquote. If you live in the city, things are even worse. Buildings and roads replace open land and vegetation in cities, right? Concrete and asphalt surfaces in the sun, well, they become much hotter than the surrounding air temperature. And that results in what we call a heat island. That's a heat island effect in large populated areas. Rural areas are more moist and cool, and they lead to less heat-related emergencies in most cases. You might not consider a heat wave to be a natural disaster, but it most certainly is. Heat waves can cause mass casualties. It did in Europe when tens of thousands of people died of exposure. Now, you might think I'm talking about the Middle Ages, but I'm actually talking about the year 2003. Yes, it happened that recently. Places like India, Pakistan, other undeveloped hot countries, tropical countries, they experience thousands of heat-related deaths yearly. Now, how does heat kill? How exactly does heat kill a person? Your body core regulates its temperature for optimal organ function, right? When core body temperature rises excessively, known as hyperthermia, then there's inflammation. Cells wind up dying, toxins wind up leaking out of the dead cells, and indeed, fatalities can occur pretty quickly without rapid intervention. Even with modern technology, hyperthermia carries about a 10% death rate, mostly in the elderly and infirm. So if that nursing home loses its air conditioning, loses power and loses its air conditioning, you're going to have people that may actually die. That doesn't mean that those who are pretty physically fit and very young, they're definitely not immune either. The ill effects due to overheating are called heat exhaustion if they're mild to moderate. Now, if they're severe, these effects are referred to as heat stroke. Heat exhaustion usually doesn't result in permanent damage, but heat stroke does. Indeed, it can actually permanently disable or even kill its victim. It's a medical emergency that should be diagnosed and treated promptly. Now, simply having muscle cramps or a fainting spell doesn't necessarily signify an imminent heat-related medical emergency. You may see heat cramps often in kids that have been running around on a hot day. Now, get them out of the sun, massage and the affected muscles, and give them some hydration, that usually solves the problem. So heat exhaustion, actual heat exhaustion signs and symptoms include confusion, rapid pulse, profuse sweating, flushing, or sometimes they'll appear ashen in color. Um, they'll feel nauseous, they may vomit, they'll have a headache, and of course their core body temperature is elevated, sometimes up to about 105 degrees. Now if you don't take action to cool the victim at this point, they can easily progress to heat stroke. In addition to all the possible signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion that I just mentioned, heat stroke manifests as loss of consciousness, seizures. Some people even bleed. That's, you can see that in vomit or, or urine. The breathing becomes rapid and shallow, and you start getting organ malfunction, shock ensues, and there you go, you possibly can die. Now, in heat stroke, the skin is likely to be red and hot to the touch, but interestingly enough, it's oftentimes very dry. Sweating might be absent. And the reason why for that is that once a body core hits 105 degrees or more, it varies from person to person a little bit, thermoregulation, what we call thermoregulation, breaks down and the body's ability to use sweating as a natural temperature regulator fails. In heat stroke, the body core can rise as high as 110 degrees Fahrenheit or more. Matter of fact, 
The highest body temperature ever recorded was about 115 degrees. And that was on July 10, 1980, where a 52-year-old heat stroke victim in Atlanta was admitted to the hospital with that temperature, body temperature. Amazing. Now, the funny thing, the amazing thing also is that he spent 24 days in the hospital, but he actually recovered fully. It's pretty amazing. In some circumstances, you may notice that the victim's skin with heat stroke actually sort of feels a little cool. They're actually sort of clammy to the touch. That's important to realize that it's the body core temperature that's elevated. You could be misled unless you actually take readings with the thermometer to reveal the patient's true status. Thermometer, good item for your medical kit. Now, I mentioned giving people fluids to prevent dehydration, but if you have somebody that's in heat stroke, you want to avoid giving fluids unless you're certain that that victim is awake and fully oriented, which oftentimes with heat stroke, they're not. In that circumstance, if you try to give them fluids, it may go down the wrong pipe and you could be in worse trouble than you started. Now, when overheated patients are no longer able to cool themselves, it's up to their rescuers to do the job. So what you should do is immediately get that person out and away from the heat source. For example, get them out of the sun. You remove their clothing and you drench them in cool water, even with ice if, if it's available. You want to elevate their legs above the level of their heart. That's what we call the shock position. You want to fan them, otherwise ventilate them to help with heat evaporation. And have if you can't completely drench the person, or if you can't, let's say, wet sheets and wrap them around the person, that's called the uh, heat stroke burrito, you may have to make do with the shake and break cold packs that you may have in your medical kit. Now you want to put these, if that's the case, that's all you got, you want to put the moist cold compresses, you want to wet them and you want to put moist cold compresses in the neck, armpit, and the groin areas. Now why these areas? Because major blood vessels pass close to the skin there and cold packs will more efficiently cool the body core. By the way, recent studies by the military suggest that cold packs to the feet and hands are also helpful. If you're dealing with someone with heat stroke, pretty much you have failed to do your job as medic because heat stroke is preventable in many cases if you are diligent with keeping an eye on your people in hot weather, especially in survival situations where they may have to be doing work sessions in the heat. The Arizona Department of Health, and I guess they should know the heat, right? Recommends the following things that you should do. You should drink at least two liters, about a half gallon of water per day if you're mostly indoors, and one to two additional liters for every hour of outdoor time. You want to drink before you feel thirsty and avoid alcohol and caffeine. You want to wear lightweight, light-colored clothing. Use a sun hat or an umbrella to deflect the sun's rays. And if you got sunscreen, you should definitely use that. That is a medical supply and something that the medic should consider having in quantity. As for solid food, eat smaller, more frequent meals instead of large ones. You want to, of course, avoid strenuous activity and stay indoors in the middle of the day when the heat is worse. And you want to take regular breaks if you have to exert yourself on warm days. If the weather is especially hot, I want you to make sure that you're checking on the elderly, the very young, and people that might be infirm. They have to be checked on regularly and often. These people have more difficulty seeking help, and you might just save a life if you're vigilant. You can bet there's going to be more than one heat wave this summer, so know the warning signs and how to help people with heat-related emergencies. And now, a word from our sponsor, Dan's Baboon Emporium. 
Baboons, those happy-go-lucky primates that'll steal your ham sandwich right out of your hands and give you a friendly nip to boot. Baboons can make great pets. Just ask the Petersons here. We, they got two. Uh, where are the Petersons? In the hospital. Okay, well, must be COVID. Go to Dan's Baboon Emporium and get your pet baboon today. Take it home, give it a hug. I promise you'll get a big surprise. Dan's Baboon Emporium. All stock now available at huge discounts. Hey, I don't know about you, but during summer and early fall down here in South Florida, we have a thunderstorm just about every day. And with it comes lightning and thunder and flooding and all sorts of stuff. And these lead to, well, a number of fender benders and other assorted mishaps. Thunderstorms can occur anywhere, however, where cooler air collides with warm, moist air. They're considered severe if winds reach 58 miles an hour or more, if there's inch-thick diameter hail, or, or tornado forms. Now, some people add rain volume to that, say one to two inches of rain every hour for several hours. Now, let's talk about thunder and lightning. What actually is thunder? Thunder is a sound wave that emanates from lightning. The sound waves form along the length of a lightning's path. If the lightning bolt is perfectly straight, you don't hear a rumbling effect. You hear a single crack or a boom. Now, as lightning takes a more jagged course to the ground, it causes more of that rumbling effect. Sound travels at about 350 yards per second, so you can estimate the distance between you and a lightning strike by counting the seconds between seeing the lightning and then hearing the accompanying thunder. So five seconds between the lightning and the thunder, that's about a mile. So you know that the lightning strike was about a mile away. And lightning occurs more than a billion times a year, and you can expect about 25% of these to strike the ground. In a typical storm, you'll have lightning strikes about two to three times a minute until the storm begins to dissipate. Weather conditions are so favorable the further south you go in the U.S. that 70% of lightning strikes occur there. It's extremely rare to become a victim of a lightning strike. The majority, believe it or not, actually survive the event, although I've seen actual videos of people struck by lightning that just keeled over and died. Uh, but the problem with Surviving a lightning strike is that oftentimes you'll have some long-term nerve or even mental damage. Now, you want to stay away from light fixtures, metal fixtures in a home or, or a car during a severe storm or away from tall objects like trees and utility poles when you're outside. These are all good strategies to avoid lightning and injuries. You're also recommended to wait for the storm to pass before you take a shower because plumbing fixtures indeed conduct electricity. Let's talk a little bit about hail. Now, once a thunderstorm produces hailstones, it becomes a hailstorm. And this is more common in mountainous areas, areas of Colorado, Wyoming, and nearby states down to Texas and go all the way up in a corridor to parts of Canada. That comprises what we call hail alley, just like areas of the Midwest and South have a tornado alley. Hail often produces all sorts of damage, affecting vehicles, roofing, glass, and worst of all, crops and livestock can destroy crops. Uh, aircraft actually may be damaged by airborne hail that's as small as a half inch in diameter. If you're on the highway, what you should do is you should get under an overpass or into a building's parking garage as soon as possible, some kind of cover. If there isn't cover, then what you need to do is stop the car completely, get off the highway, and get down with your back towards and your face away from the windows.
Of course, with severe storms, there's also the chance for flash flooding. That's a process where a landscape is just inundated as a result of large volumes of rain from a storm. Uh, we talk about this in our article on flood safety. That's pretty extensive. You'll see that at doomandbloom.net. Also, tornadoes can occur. Formations of tornadoes in a storm cause a major destruction. We drove through uh, Joplin and Branson, Missouri a few years ago after a tornado. I can tell you, Mother Nature is a very harsh mistress. And we also have lots of articles on tornadoes and tornado safety at doomandbloom.net. By the way, there are also things called downbursts. I don't know if you've ever heard of these. Downburst winds are often mistaken for tornadoes due to their force. They're very forceful. However, they're actually quite different. In a tornado, winds circle a central point both inward and upward. But in a downburst, wind travels downwind and then outward from the landing point on the ground. And they can still be very violent and they can cause a lot of damage. Now, I've got here the American Red Cross guidelines for storm safety. Uh, don't ignore thunder. Anyone close enough to hear thunder can be struck by lightning. You want to avoid electrical appliances not attached to power surge protectors. That's important. Cordless telephones, if you still have that in your home, are safe to use during a thunderstorm, by the way. Uh, you want to close all windows and doors. High winds can break glass. Don't bathe or shower because plumbing conducts electricity. I mentioned that. If driving, you want to safely exit the road, park away from trees or utility poles. You want to remain in the vehicle and avoid touching metal. If you find a building with a garage, get inside it. And you want, of course, if you are not in a car, you're just outside, use your common sense and get inside a safe, sturdy building. If this is impossible, take cover in a low area while minimizing contact with the ground. Some people say to crouch. There's going to be a lot of thunderstorms this summer, so be sure to know what to do and prevent injury. Hey, Nurse Amy here. Last time we did a part one of making herbal remedies. We talked about some of the supplies that you need. We also talked about what you might want to have in an herbal first aid kit. And then we discussed uh, some of the techniques of producing herbal remedies. And the first one we discussed was infusions. But I don't think I mentioned uh, something called a pot infusion. So when you use that, you're going to warm the pot and then you're going to add the herb into the pot. You're going to pour water that's just been boiled into the pot, replace the lid, and then infuse that for 10 minutes. When you go to use it, you're going to strain some of the effusion into a cup, of course, to capture the, the herbal leaves or, or whatever part you used. And then you can add a teaspoon of honey if desired. So generally speaking, if you're making an infusion, you're going to have one teaspoon of dried or two teaspoons of fresh herb or mixture of different herbs for a cup of water. This makes, quote, one dose. The pot, if you're going to use the pot infusion, you want 20 grams of dried herb or 30 grams of fresh herbs or, again, a mixture of different herbs to two cups of water. And the standard dosage for infusions is three to four doses, which is a total of two cups to three cups each day. And you can store this in a covered jug in a refrigerator or a cool place for up to 24 hours. So they don't last very long. This is really something you should do fresh. You know, you can make something for the morning and drink it to, throughout the day. But it's not something you want to make and store for weeks and weeks or months. That's not how this is used. You want to dry your herb if you're going to keep them for a while. Make sure that they're um, airtight. 
Uh, you don't want to get humidity. You don't want to get some mold in there. And of course, again, we keep things cool and dry also. Uh, deconcoction is the next thing. Uh, that's made when you're using roots, bark, twigs, berries, something that requires a more forceful treatment than just leaves or flowers. So leaves and flowers are better for infusions. A decoction involves simmering those tougher parts in boiling water. Fresh or dried plant material may be used, but should be cut or broken into much smaller pieces. You're trying to extract the constituents inside of this herbal material. So if you think about having a, a whole stick or twig or you know a whole root, you're really not going to have a lot of surface area to get the good herbal remedy out of it. So you want to chop it up, cut it, make it into much smaller pieces uh, before doing the concocting. Like infusions, uh, decoctions can be taken hot or cold. The standard recipe is 20 grams of dried or 40 grams of fresh herbs, or again, a mixture of herbs, to three cups of water. So here you're using a little bit more water, but remember, you're going to be boiling. And what happens when you're boiling something is you actually lose a volume of water, percentage of the water. So it's going to boil off. You won't end up with three cups. You're going to reduce it to about two cups of water after the simmering. And this makes about three to four dosages. Take three to four dosages or, or two cups each day. You can store this also in a covered jug in a refrigerator or a cool place. But now you can store this for up to 48 hours. The infusion, they typically say 24 hours. So you're in the morning you're making what you're going to drink through the day. But for a de decoction can actually be kept for two days. So that's kind of cool. Decoctions are usually made, again, using the roots, berries, bark, and sometimes leaves and flowers can be included. Add these more delicate parts of the plant once the heat is turned off and the decoction has finished simmering and is beginning to cool. Then strain and use as required. In traditional Chinese medicine, decoctions are the main way in which herbal medicines are prepared. Large quantities of herbs are used to produce a highly concentrated liquid. Remember we started with three cups and then went down to two. Or the decoction is further reduced so there's only three quarters of a cup of liquid left. That's really making it concentrated. This increases the preparation's concentration. The process is useful for astringent bark such as um, oak and babul, which may be used externally to tighten gums or to wash like skin rashes. But don't take this internally. That's not one you're going to take internally. So the exact process is place the herbs in a saucepan, cover with cold water and bring to a boil, and then reduce to simmering for about 20 to 30 minutes or until the liquid is reduced by about one-third. Again, you're starting with three cups. When you get to about two cups, it's finished. Then strain the liquid through a sieve into a jug, pour the required amount into a cup, and then cover the jug and store in the cool place. So that's generally speaking how you make a decoction. Now let's talk about tinctures. Tinctures are made by soaking an herb in alcohol, uh, typically a vodka or a rum. This encourages the active plant constituents to dissolve, giving tinctures a relatively stronger action, which is important to know, it's stronger than infusions or decoctions. They are convenient to use and last up to two years. Now you're getting a longer lifespan of a medicinal remedy. 
So it's not something you're making fresh for one day or fresh for two days. You're actually able to keep this up to two years, probably how depending on how you store it. Tinctures can be made using a jug and muslin cloth instead of a wine press. Although mainly used in European, American, and Australian herbal medicine, tinctures play a part in most herbal traditions. Your recipe typically is 200 dried or 3 grams dried or 300 grams of fresh herb chopped into small pieces again like you did for the decoction to one quart or one liter of alcohol. Vodka of 30 to 40 percent alcohol is ideal although rum hides the taste of bitter or nasty tasting herbs which there are quite a few of them will make a nasty tasting tincture. Standard doses is one teaspoon two to three times a day diluted into at least 25 milliliters of water of fruit juice. So you can dilute it as much as you want, but you want to use at least 25 milliliters again because this stuff is just, well, first of all, it's, it's alcohol, a shot of alcohol, and it does burn. The herb might taste terrible, so you might want to dilute it a little more. Storage is in a sterilized, that's important, sterilized dark glass bottle in a cool place and all of us who keep our food storage know that the cool dark place is an important thing. The dark glass bottles prevent uh, any kind of UV rays from getting in there and again up to two hours. Tinctures are strong preparations. It's essential to check the recommended dosage so every herb has its own dosage so make sure that you're looking at your issue and what the recommended tincture amount is that you're not overdosing. You can overdose on herbs, folks. Never use industrial alcohol, methylated spirits like methyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol in tinctures. That is not what we're talking about here. Alcohol-reduced tinctures should sometimes be avoided, for example, during pregnancy or if you have gastric inflammation. If your stomach is bothering you or you have issues with your intestines, this is not something that you are going to want to use. Add five milliliter, again, of the tincture to a small glass of almost boiling water, leaving it for five minutes. This is going to denature the alcohol. It's going to allow the alcohol to evaporate and you won't be drinking alcohol. So if you want to have a tincture without the alcohol, do that. It's going to make it non-alcoholic and, um, you know, depending on the issue, uh, that's important to people or or their beliefs. Uh, You can just make a non-alcoholic tincture and replace the alcohol with vinegar or glycerol. Tincture ratios are made in different strengths. Uh, In this book that I've been reading, they use a one to five ratio, which generally means one part of herb to five parts alcohol. Uh, That's just a a typical general recommendation. So how do you make this? Place the herb in a large clean glass jar, pour on the alcohol, ensuring that the herb is covered. Make sure that jar is sterile, by the way. Close and label the jar, shake well for one to two minutes, then store in a cool, dark place for 10 to 14 days, shaking the jar every one, every day to two days every other day. Set up a wine press, placing muslin or nylon mesh bags securely inside. Pour in the mixture and collect the liquid in the jug. Slowly close the wine press, extracting remaining liquid from the herbs until no drips appear. Discard the leftover herbs. Pour the tincture into a clean, dark glass using a funnel that was also sterilized. When it's full, cover it with a cork or a screw top and label the bottle so you know exactly what was in it 
and the date you made it. Next time we're going to have a part three and we'll talk about capsules and powders, tonic wines, syrups, and much more. Thank you so much for listening. This is Nurse Amy, Amy Alton, a nurse practitioner and a herbal enthusiast. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, this is the part of the show where I discuss topics brought up usually by readers, listeners, and viewers of our various social media outlets. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, just email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. This week's letter flows from Ford, who write, What medications or supplies should I stock in addition to regular medical prep for cellulitis? I've developed the history of cellulitis in my shins. Antibiotics have been used to treat it successfully, but I'm concerned about the chances of resistant bacteria. Can you recommend which antibiotics and supplies I should stockpile for you-know-what situations? Also, anything I can do to help prevent this recurring. It has come from both cuts and most recently chigger bites. I have used bug repellent with limited success and have become very diligent about keeping the area clean. Thank you, Ford. Ford, I've written a lot about cellulitis in the last decade and even have a section on it in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Cellulitis is an inflammation of soft tissue. It can occur in any circumstance where your body's natural armor, your skin, is breached and bacteria invade deeper layers. It's very common. Very few people that spend time outdoors will avoid getting it from time to time. This would be especially true in survival settings where you have to perform exertions that you're just not accustomed to doing just to stay alive. Despite everything you do to care for a wound, there's a chance that an infection will occur. You can identify cellulitis by a few signs other than just pain. Redness, often spreading as the infection worsens, usually going up your arm or up your leg, depending what part of the body is actually injured. Swelling, which leads to a very shiny aspect to the skin in the area that's swollen. Warmth, which is obviously different than, say, on the opposite unaffected side. It's definitely going to be warmer on the red side than it is on the side that does not have the injury. And in the worst cases, accumulations of pus called abscesses can occur. This leads to a foul odor and the drainage of a whitish, yellowish discharge. If this condition is untreated, the infection can, in certain cases, spread to your circulation and become life-threatening. Cellulitis can be caused by many bacteria, but is most commonly caused by streptococcus and staphylococcus, which enter through a break in your skin. A more resistant version of staph called MRSA, M-R-S-A, can make this infection even more difficult to deal with. Cellulitis is often treated, as it was in your case, Ford, with antibiotics. The most common antibiotics used to treat the infection that are available to the general public without a prescription are amoxicillin, cephalexin, trimethoprin, sulfamethoxazole, clindamycin, and doxycycline in their aquatic or avian versions. That is, Fishmox Forte, Fish Flex Forte, Fish Sulfa Forte, Fish Sin, C-I-N, and Bird Biotic, respectively. All this is in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Now, don't forget that amoxicillin and cephalexin may cause reaction to those people who are allergic to penicillin and may not be effective against MRSA in some cases. To help prevent cellulitis and other infections, take these precautions when you have a skin wound. 
Wash your wound daily with soap and water. Do this gently as part of your normal bathing. Apply a protective cream or ointment. For most surface wounds and over-the-counter ointment, such as bacitracin, triple antibiotic cream, even Vaseline helps to provide some protection. You also want to make sure you cover open wounds with a bandage and change that bandage at least daily. You want to follow the course of the infection by marking the boundaries of the redness with a marker. If it's spreading, make sure you're taking one of the antibiotics that I mentioned. In your specific case for it, you want to start wearing boots and high tops as well as long pants when you're outside and tuck your trousers into your boots. Although I can't vouch for their success, with chiggers, certain insects really don't like DEET repellents for skin and permethrin 0.5%, not for skin, but to treat clothing. The bottom line is to protect your skin. Your skin is your armor and you want to avoid a break in it, whether it's from an insect bite or whether it's from some other injury. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And do us a big favor and subscribe to doomandbloom.net so that you'll never miss any of our podcasts, videos, and articles as they come out. Thanks again. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.